Larry Hathaway, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. Larry, you um, have started your own project called Jackson Hole Economics. Before then, you were chief economist and head of investment solutions at GAM. And before that, you were chief economist at UBS Investment Bank. So, Larry, um, I before we get on to your Jackson Hole project, I wanted to start a little bit with what you did before. And I was actually going to start perhaps two jobs back very briefly. Um, wanted to talk a little bit first about your move from UBS to GAM. So at UBS, right, you were chief economist at the investment bank. How was it to move from that to chief economist as as an asset manager, was that very different? It was, in many respects, very different. Um, and and it also uh, the the answer to that question also answers perhaps the question about why make the move. Um, the, the The reality was is that moving from the sell side, i.e., from investment banking to the investment management side, uh, posed uh, really an exciting new sort of learning curve for me. Um, and I think that having been on the investment banking side for more than two decades. Having done a lot of really fun things there, I really enjoyed it. Um, I probably was ready for that next challenge and especially the learning experience that came with it. Um, so, yes, it, it really was a different environment. I would say perhaps less as an economist. After all, we use the same toolkit. We're analyzing similar situations. We're responding as we always do to a changing environment. But learning the tools and the trade and the practice of investment management uh, really was, was for me an exciting uh, period of growth. So was that quite new to you, the head of investment solutions role? Not entirely. Um, so while at, at GAM, although I was in the investment bank, I was seconded for virtually my entire career uh, to the wealth management division, specifically to be in their investment committee, the asset allocation committee. So I had uh, insights into how an institution like that would make some of its investment decisions. That was certainly part of my role. But also through that mechanism, I could see how things were implemented. But I suppose the, the learning curve I was alluding to before was then really perhaps the nuts and bolts of a lot of those things um, in terms of, of the kind of products and how they're developed and managed um, a little uh, quite a bit more on client and client management, client engagement, which is a different uh, sort of feel when you're managing their money than if you're giving them, let's say, broad advice about the world economy and capital markets. Um, and there are sort of legal and regulatory aspects, too, that uh, I had to become aware of that uh, you know we just didn't face in my prior role. Was it um, difficult to have to balance so many different responsibilities at once? Um, in some ways, yes. I mean, and, and that too was part of the challenge. I will say, I suppose, you know, in all of these institutions, um, there are opportunities and sometimes you you take them and sometimes you're perhaps wise or not to, to really spread yourself quite thin and, and to engage and, and juggle a lot of responsibilities. Um, in, in the case of, of moving to GAM, um, in addition to the chief economist role, as you said, I ran investment solutions that didn't actually exist before as a group within the firm. So part of my role was to bring together some different parts of the firm, the multi-asset strategy teams, our fund of hedge fund team, uh, some of our alternative managers into that particular space. And uh, that too meant, you know, juggling also other types of responsibilities. Ones that I had some prior experience in, that is managing teams and managing individuals, albeit now these were investment managers with underlying 
uh, portfolio management, um, different than perhaps analysts and, and strategists and economists in an investment bank. Uh, but so there was managerial aspects to juggle. There were, let's say, objectives to set for a new division that hadn't existed before that we had to establish and communicate to people. And then I was also given some responsibilities to manage some strategies myself, that is funds and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and portfolios. You did leave in the wake of obviously quite a tumultuous period at GAM with the whole Hayward incident. I mean, did that influence your timing for leaving or your plan for leaving at all? I, in part, but not entirely. Um, it seemed to me that, um, number one, while I was at GAM, I had accomplished a lot of things that I had set out. Um, I sort of uh, joined the firm with, rough, roughly speaking, a five-year personal horizon as to what I wanted to do. Um, there were personal considerations as well. I was thinking about at what point uh, my wife and I would rejoin our children in the United States, uh, aging parents, you know, those sorts of decisions that, that obviously affect um, some of our, our, our uh, thinking about, you know, where we want to work, where we want to pursue our career. But I think as well, um, it, it, was, it was in a sense, it was, it was the things that I really enjoyed at GAM that also helped me to make the decision to move on. You know, I mentioned earlier this idea of, of kind of starting a new challenge and learning something new. And I felt like I had a couple of things already under my wing. In other words, kind of career experience in capital markets, economics, but also in investment management. And I had uh, made some, uh, uh, you know, sort of interesting connections with individuals who, um, you know, I, I found out more subsequently, but I kind of knew it at the time as well, would want me to work with them going forward. And, and so my network had been kind of established such that I could think about doing something independently. That was, by the way, both in a nonprofit sense and ultimately turned out to be true as well in, a, in, let's say, in a commercial sense, because I've pursued both things now that I have started on my own, namely a nonprofit as well as a for-profit small enterprise. So in effect, you were planning, you've been planning your next move for a while, but when that whole incident broke, it perhaps signaled to you that now is the time to go and do it, maybe rather than waiting for a whole new period in how GAM is run and bedding in with that. I, I think that's that's largely correct. In other words, I, the thought that you know, as you know, you reach certain points in your career, perhaps uh, stages in your life, ages in your life, those sorts of things, you know, the thoughts begin to percolate about sort of you know not only what comes next, but sort of you know what what you really are still intending professionally to accomplish while you have that opportunity. And when I uh, when I joined GAM, I remember speaking with with colleagues there, including with the then CEO Alex Friedman, and talking about it sort of being my last stint in, let's say, an organized type of an endeavor, right? Um, and uh, I was very honest with myself. I was very honest with others around me. Uh, the timing of the decision, yes, it is true, obviously, that GAM had some challenges. And, and thankfully, it's working its way through them. I have lovely colleagues there. And and I, you know, helped, it, I think, a, a bit in terms of the transition as well by trying to stay on a little while, even after sort of events were beginning to move in order to try to provide some stability to the groups that I was both working with, you know, making sure that clients were aware that uh, we were committed to, uh, to a strategy and to carry it out for them, and the same thing for colleagues and employees. But it wasn't so much, you know, those events that would have triggered this. I, I was really, really reaching a point in my life where this was just an important thing for me to do was to set out on my own.
I think there are a few um, interesting threads there. I mean, perhaps the the first I might uh, pick up on is um, you wanting to go to the US. Um, I mean, that sounds like a a personal decision for you. Um, Was it also, you know, a professional decision because you've you've founded your company in America. Do you think that America was perhaps a better location to have the kind of company that you have founded, or was that entirely personal? I think it was largely personal. I, I don't think, in other words, I don't think it the you know whether it was easier to start a company in the U.S. or in or in Europe it would have played much of a role. Would it be fair to say that? You you have come back to chaos, and how how has that Im- how has that impacted Jackson Hole Economics' early output? <laughs> I, I think there is a lot of truth in that. Um, uh, that said, sadly, some of this sort of chaotic environment is 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 uh, is found elsewhere as well, as as we all know. You know the rise. Yeah, I'm sure you're referring to the political side of things and the rise of populism and all the all the in- extraordinary twists and turns that have arrived with it is uh, is 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 pronounced in the United States. There's no doubt about it. Even if we find its uh, its echoes elsewhere, and and you know ultimately, I suppose that the sources of these sorts of things are found in other other parts of the world but yes i i think it, it was um it, it, i mean i think the entire period for me personally from 2016 onward was both fascinating and unnerving um both it certainly helped in launching a nonprofit that's devoted to discussing public policy issues, uh, whether they're in economics or finance or in um, other areas of public policy, including education and crime and things like that. We have a number of contributors who've really enriched in sort of the, the platform by their contributions across these different dimensions. Um, and in a sense, we, we benefit from the fact that there is actually, I believe, greater interest, um, even if some of it is highly partisan and highly divisive, there is greater interest in these issues these days because the volume has been turned up. And um, and since we are, you know, in a small way contributing to that and participating in it, it probably does make for a better time to launch that kind of an endeavor. So, um, you know, sad to say, perhaps, but true. Yeah, and um, we'll come on shortly to... I think you've described it not as a think tank, but as an action tank, which sounds mildly threatening. But um, <laughs> um, we'll, we'll come on to that in more more detail in a second. I mean, I was also wondering, Jackson Hole specifically, why why specifically Jackson Hole? Does it is it just a nice uh, place to live? <laughs> Well, it is. It is, uh, and and I don't reside there anymore. But that was actually where we we had a we had a small property not far from there. Um, not actually in the town itself or the ski resort, but kind of as it were um, down some roads from there. And uh, so that because it is a, a very agreeable place to live. I'm a, I love the outdoors in in all respects. Um, is where uh, is where I was. Uh, and uh, and my co-founder of, of Jacksonville Economics is Alex Friedman, who I you know gotten to know at U. Yes, and a GAM and so forth. And um, it was uh, our sort of joint effort, um, along with um, some uh, very interesting collaboration with Project Syndicate, which is um, a similar platform, but perhaps not with the same kind of exposure in the United States. And so collaboratively, the three of us as entities thought this would be an interesting endeavor to begin. Uh, and since both of us were at the time living in Wyoming, uh, we were searching for names for it. Um, we didn't actually really like the idea that it had the, the moniker economics in the title because to some extent it's broader than that. 
Um, we, I suppose, shamelessly brought, borrowed a, a, a very strong brand called Jackson Hole. Uh, you know, the Fed has it as well. And uh, in its conference, its annual conference that holds every August. Your website says we seek new ways to improve the human condition, which sounds like a very lofty goal. So how, how do you achieve that? Yeah, so it, 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 dove, it dovetails back to your comment about a, sort of an action tank. Uh, there are, of course, uh, lots and lots of so-called think tanks, and, and we don't actually think we could probably compete with sort of, you know, some of the high caliber stuff that you'll see coming out of some of those institutions. What we really are trying to do is is to nudge. Uh, I think, you know, it's a, it's a word, I suppose, that's been overused in the last decade or two, but we, we're trying to sort of nudge readers to, to think, um, who, who, by the way, may not be specialists, they may not be economists, financiers, or specialists in some of the other topics that we cover, but to try to nudge them to think a, a little bit um, more practical about how we get from some of the challenges that, that confront us today to better outcomes. And, and, and that's why it's action-oriented. I mean, not every article that is written there, not even by myself, necessarily offers an action point or a possible way towards a better outcome. But it is aspirational that we and our co-authors do that. So we, um, you know, we'll address a topic like, for example, gun violence in the United States. I mean, some of our contributors have written on that and try to think about ways that we might both educate. That's one way to nudge people to perhaps think about it differently, um, but also to think about, you know, maybe uh, there are some solutions, not if not solutions, I should say improvements in the way in which we uh, think about that particular form of violence and the carnage that it causes um, that would improve conditions for both those who um, you know, quite rightly have the right to own a firearm, but also those who quite rightly have the right to, uh, to, 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 to live um, without being in fear. Um, and, and so in a sense, the action side of it or the aspirational side that we talked about before is really just to try to find that middle ground in this sort of heavily partisan debate, which I think has been to some extent um, vacated and occupy a little bit of that space and try to get people on both sides to think a bit more reasonably about issues than they do in this highly polarized social media world. Do you think there's much appetite from the general population to actually find the middle ground as well? I mean, it seems to be something that you see, you know, people in lots of different countries, they want to launch centrist parties or they want to launch initiatives to bridge divides. But at a time, especially in the US where you're living, where the divide between the two main parties and seems so polarized, is, is that actually something that you're finding achievable? I, I strongly believe that right now we are swimming against the current. <laughs> there's a, I don't think there's any doubt about that. So you get no uh, no disagreement with me in, in terms of perhaps under the, uh, the the underlying tenor of your question. On the other hand, I, I think that this is just the, the responsible thing to do. Um, let me draw a parallel. I mean, this is going to sound... Um, very self-aggrandizing. It's not meant to be. It's not like I'm putting myself on any kind of a pedestal with these sorts of people. But if we look at U.S. history and we go back to the kind of the fractious period, uh, one of the other fractious periods, I should say, of U.S. history, which was after 
from the U.S. perspective, the successful conclusion of the Revolutionary War, i.e., uh, the, the, at, at the defeat of Cornwallis and, and, the, and the establishment of what was now going to be actually a confederacy of states, which existed from 1781 to the Constitutional Convention of 1787 and the ratification of the Constitution uh, shortly thereafter. That period was highly contentious in U.S. politics. Uh, states' rights uh, held the upper hand, but there were many who felt that there needed to be federal institutions. And in the end, two people primarily, uh, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, who did not necessarily share similar views, and one came from a slave state and the other did not, found a way, obviously in the context of the entire discussions about the Constitution, to write the Federalist Papers. Um, and the Federalist Papers were trying to stake out that middle ground in many, many respects between those who vociferously argued for states' rights often with the intention, of course, of preserving the institution of slavery, and those who equally vociferously argued that there needed to be a central authority, and themselves in many cases were obviously uh, abolitionists of one form or another. And yet, in that charged, supercharged debate that could have ultimately split the then 13 states in half, um, as it did, of course, uh, uh, roughly speaking, a century later, um, you found two individuals who could find that common ground and ultimately could convince people politically to move to that common ground. It wasn't perfect. They recognized that. But what I guess we're saying in the world that we live in today, where the polarization is extreme, we know that, is that it's incumbent upon uh, people to actually find that middle ground but between these extremes. And it may not be easy, and it may at times be highly frustrating or almost feel like a lost cause, but I can't really see that there's an alternative to it, um, at least not an alternative that would have an agreeable outcome at the end of it. I know you've had, spent many years now working for Swiss firms. Have you been influenced by the Swiss tradition of direct democracy at all? Is that something that you can draw inspiration from? I, yes, I think I have been influenced by it. In other words, I have seen it in action and I, I admire it actually in action. Although sometimes, as, as, as I'm sure the Swiss uh, on reflection would probably admit, there, there, there seem to be some fairly trivial things that come up for the, for the popular vote. Um, and sometimes they steer the country in an odd direction now and again. But it is something that I've that I've thought a little bit about. We have some small elements of that in parts of the U.S. So the state of California is 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 pretty um, has a pretty rich history now in propositions, um, particularly obviously some uh, famous or infamous ones around tax, uh, but not just in that space. And uh, so it's not an alien concept in the United States. But it is a uh, state concept or a local concept. It is not a federal one. Uh, unlike in Switzerland, obviously, in its federal structure, it can have nationwide votes on on these propositions and does frequently have those. Um, the, the, the essential problem or challenge, I should probably say, in the United States is um, not terribly different from a challenge that Switzerland faces, which is sort of the tug of war between the federal and the cantonal. Um, you know, my, my sense is that in Switzerland, the local or cantonal level and, and including even subcantonal, that is at the, at the level of the communal level, is holding the upper hand in financial affairs and in even in political affairs in the country. The U.S. history wouldn't really allow for that. 
um, it seems to me, right? I mean, it is the eternal struggle in the U.S. that finds its way every year into the Supreme Court is the rights of states versus the rights of the federal government, the rights of states and the federal government versus individuals. And our young democracy, I, I think, is is maybe not robust enough for a direct democracy outcome, particularly one that would actually devolve too much power to the local level um, because of the abuse of that power in, in, in our nation's history. Um, then in terms of who you have had contributing, so just so anyone listening has a good idea, if you go on Jackson Hole Economics on the website, you have comments from a variety of different people um, on range of different topics. I mean, you've had some fairly big names. For example, I think you had Mohammed El Arian wrote something for you fairly recently. Are these all people that you personally know? How do you recruit them? Right. So it's great. It's a great question. Uh, so there's a, there are, um, I'll just say just for the, for the um, first time viewers uh, edification, there are sort of, let's say three classes of contributors that we have there. Um, uh, we write, that is, I frequently write, Alex writes occasionally. Um, then we have um, our network of friends, colleagues, um, however big, broad that, uh, let's say, personal network has been through our professional careers and perhaps even outside of them. And then we also have an arrangement with uh, Project Syndicate. Again, readers are, or excuse me, uh, listeners are not um, familiar with it. It's an organization that was started in the early 1990s to try to provide an English language platform for discussion of public policy issues for the most part, others as well, uh, for readers around the world, particularly those that were coming out from underneath the kind of the, the communist and Iron Curtain experience. And because we've had a long association with them professionally, and they were looking uh, to perhaps get a little bit more visibility in the U.S., some of our authors are authors who write for Project Syndicate who will then will republish on our own platform. So those are the three different types. But your question is really about the middle group, I think, in the sense is, is our network. And I just think it's, yes, it is people that we've known personally. Although I will say in the few years now that we've launched this, uh, we've had people come to us um, that we didn't know and say, you know, I'm doing X, Y, and Z and um, would love to be able to contribute and um, we'll evaluate, you know, sort of a, essentially not so much them. I mean, we're not really that interested in, you know, the person sort of, you know, whatever, let's say their uh, their qualifications, that, that that's rather meaningless, but whether they have something interesting to contribute, and if they do, then we'll, we'll, we'll publish it. So we had a, a young medical student write for us, for example, um, who was actually referred to us through a friend. We've had um, uh, some people come uh, to us who come from the economics and finance uh, background, from the uh, sort of uh, environmental public policy arena. Um, so a number of different places. And, and as the site grows, and it's growing slowly, but it is growing, we're getting a little bit more attention. And that attention has this positive effect of drawing in some new authors and contributors. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you mentioned also, obviously, you saw, you launched this with um, Alex Friedman, who was CEO of GAM at the time you were there. I mean, how did he decide to join in with you after he left GAM or before? Yes. No, we started this afterward. Um, while uh, he was... I I'm quite certain this actually predates his arrival at GAM. I suspect I've never actually asked him. Might have even been while he was uh, the uh, the uh, uh, chief investment officer in the wealth management division at UBS. He had established this relationship. I've been I've mentioned now several times with Project Syndicate. Yeah. Uh, he and I. Um, 
Definitely GAM, and I'm, I'm pausing for a moment, maybe even at UBS, had contributed some pieces to Project Syndicate. So we already saw a platform similar to this, how it operated, how it worked, um, what kind of audience and readership it had. And so sort of percolating, perhaps in both of our minds rather independently, was the idea of doing this. I'd always fancy uh, doing something like this, my own blog or whatever you might want to call it. And then when we both left GAM, <clears throat> excuse me, and then uh, ended up in Wyoming, we sort of looked at each other, I think one day and said, we could probably do this. And that's how it started. You weren't sitting there at GAM and you saying, hey, boss, hey, boss, do you want to leave leave our jobs here, which actually pay us behind and go and launch a nonprofit instead? That wasn't part of the... No, no that wasn't, that wasn't the, uh, the way it happened. Okay. Right. Um, and then in terms of the perspectives that you host, you say you're trying to bridge a bit of a gap. I mean, how do you set the parameters for what is and isn't an appropriate thing to publish? Because that's been quite a hot topic in recent years with things like Donald Trump being kicked off Twitter. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. Um, and, um, I, you know, a, a journalist will certainly recognize, you know, the sort of the, the strong hand of the editor in, uh, in sort of fashioning what something is going to, uh, what's going to make it, make it in and what's not and, and how the ultimately res the result will look like. So from our point of view, um, our, our criteria are, are pretty, are pretty simple. We, we want it to be uh, a piece that is more analytical than descriptive. Um, so takes a problem and tries to help the reader understand what's going on beneath it, the causes of, of an issue. We want a piece, ideally, as we spoke earlier, to have some kind of a proactive type of, let's say, path to resolve an issue in it. Although, again, that doesn't always happen. We want it to be written in plain English uh, so that it can be understood by an educated reader, but not a specialist reader, not a specialist in any of the topics that we cover. Um, we want it to be op-ed-ish length. That is, you know, say a thousand words more or less, maybe a little bit less is better than a bit more than that. But beyond that, you know, when we read it, and this is that where it becomes highly subjective, is that we have to believe that the analysis is sound that the effort is, um, at least in the analytical framework, is objective, that whatever tools, logic, data, whatever has been used um, are sound, um, that we're not sort of you know, looking at spurious sources or that kind of thing when we're thinking about data. And um, in, in the end, we don't mind at all strong conclusions, but they, they also have to be based on that kind of analysis. They must flow from it. It can't just be sort of something that reflects just a, a whim or, a, or something else. And I will say that that's actually the way 99.9% .9 of them are written. I mean, I, it's not as though we're sitting there exerting an awful lot of that sort of editorial control. Sometimes I'll, you know, whittle an article down or maybe try to sharpen a little bit of the language if I can do that. At least I'd make those suggestions. It's always up to the author to either accept them or not. Um, but, uh, but we don't really find, for lack of a better way of saying it, that we're getting a lot of frivolous or potentially, you know, um, disagreeable type of contribution. Um, we've been maybe fortunate. I'm not sure. For you personally, you, are you able to contribute on a broader range of topics or do you prefer to stick primarily to economics as you have a long professional here of you have a long professional career of writing in that capacity? 
Yeah, I, I would love to, uh, to be honest with you. I'd love to branch out. Um, it, it, I guess it echoes things I it talked about earlier about, you know, being on learning curves. I mean, it's just one of life's great joys is to, is to learn something and, and to have to learn it as well, because you're going to then put yourself out there. I, I think at the moment, I, I probably am sticking more to my knitting, which is the intersection between economics and financial markets. Um, and that's largely just because I have other obligations. I am um, running a small business. I'm teaching some classes at university. Um, and um, <laughs> actually, truth be told, I'm also in the process of preparing for a couple of weddings for two daughters of mine. So uh, the, my ability to kind of branch out in this area right now is, is probably not as great as I would like it to be. But one day, let's hope. You've always not been afraid to say something perhaps a little bit out of the standard. I know that 10 years ago, you wrote um, a comment for UVS about the Eurozone, which I, I would hate to misquote you. But if you could perhaps uh, tell me exactly what you recommended people invested in, in the case of Eurozone collapse and the kind of what happened after that. I think this dates back to the periods after the financial crisis, shortly thereafter, around 2011 to say 13, when the Eurozone was going through its own trials and tribulations. And it was um, obviously a, a, a fraught time, to say the very least. Um, you know, bond yields in, in sort of the peripheral countries were spiking. Uh, and, uh, there were, you know, those, the, the spreads between, say, you know, the core Germany and so forth and those in the periphery were widening for the, for readers who understand what that means, means there was a, a massive risk premium that was building up that the Eurozone might collapse. And, um, and, you know, I think that, again, the piece you may be alluding to was a, was a collaborative one with a couple of my colleagues at UBS. And we essentially said, look, um, we very much doubt that the Eurozone is going to fail. This was, by the way, before Mario Draghi famously stood up and said he would do whatever it takes or the ECB would do whatever it takes, which was obviously the, the, the moment in which the Eurozone's future was at least assured for a bit longer, a bit meaning a decade or two. Uh, and um, But I, I think we probably said something like, well, <laughs> I don't know if this is exactly what we wrote because I just don't remember it. But if it did come to it and it did fall apart, you could really only invest in canned green peas and small firearms. In other words, it would make the, the, uh, the, the, the financial crisis of 2008 um, look like child's play because of the extraordinary uh, repercussions, economic and financial and ultimately political that would have ensued had the Eurozone broken up. And I will also say, because I don't don't want to be seen as someone who may have invented the term that I, I I'll, I'll probably for, for anonymity <laughs> protect the protect the individual. But I definitely borrowed that that shamelessly from someone I had known the decade before then who who used to use that phrase. As you say, this is a nonprofit. Um, how how do you pay your bills? Well, out of our own pockets uh, on this one. Um, it's, it's, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't really want to use terms like saying it's a modest amount because, you know, for, for you know, modest can mean different things to, to different people. But I think as a nonprofit, we, we kind of view it as, as, as a small way of trying to also give back. So I think that Jackson Hole Economics, to the extent that it's either about us or it's about our network, that's able without a cost to anyone, there's no advertising, there's no fees, there's no subscriptions or anything else, can provide a little platform for people to go and, um, and, and maybe read something that they otherwise wouldn't, then that's a way of contributing. But you are also doing something that pays you, aren't you, as well? One of the things about being in the United States is if you are providing any kind of financial advice, you a, well, you have to be regulated. That would probably be true in many places. 
But it is a slighter, lighter, a lighter touch regulation if uh, if you're advising a professional investors and b investors overseas as opposed to that as non-Americans, and and partly because I had sort of these global roles, most or many of my let's say best contacts were overseas. So I have a handful of clients uh, in in Europe and in Asia um, who had, as I said, reached out and uh, wanted me to to help them. Uh, one was uh, starting up a, a family office, literally from the ground floor uh, with uh, nothing in place. And so um, along with a couple of other people, it's not just me, um, they really wanted to kind of understand, well, how does one do that? You know, I mean, truly the nuts and bolts, uh, the commercial side of it, the legal side of it, uh, the relationships to uh, investment banks, investment management firms, and, and then ultimately things that perhaps also a little bit closer to home, like what their uh, long-term uh, investment objectives should be, how they should manage their cash position, um, and then any kind of, um, let's say, since they farm out their investments to third-party managers, how to evaluate those third-party managers in terms of their performance and you know when to make decisions and that kind of thing. Um, I'm also advising another family office. It's much more in terms of, um, let's say, current market conditions, more what you might call the tactical asset allocation decision. Uh, and um, I was fortunate enough to have a, a client who also had wanted me and a, and, a, and a colleague, a former colleague of mine, to continue to manage some money for them. So, so we have a very, very modest amount that we're helping them to manage in the capital markets by making uh, we are the investment managers for, uh, for, for some money that they have.